The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank, the bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life, a bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify, a bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers, that is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose, Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I've been lucky in a lot of ways to see quite up close and personal what leaders do, how they operate, and what makes them a little bit different from you or me, certainly me, and that's how they do leadership in a different way from how they do managing or how they are a subject matter expert. I've spent 30 or 40 years talking to politicians, CEOs, reserve bank managers, people who have progressed beyond being an expert as a banker or as a politician, someone who has to get everyone behind them, make things happen, and do it in a way that means they're better off, everyone else is better off, and uh, in the long run, people want to go the extra mile to work for them. It's not easy. And one thing I've learned, if I've learned anything over the last 30 years, is that there's lots of different answers to the same questions. And the the right thing to do is not always the same thing every time. This week on When the Facts Change, we talk about leadership, the sorts of skills orientations that are useful in leadership with someone who has a pretty high profile as a business leader. Mike Bennett was the CEO of Z Energy, a completely invented and new and completely established brand in New Zealand. And he talks about a book he's just written called Being Extraordinary by Confronting Your Ordinary. He's now working as an executive coach and is a director, but has some really interesting insights into how to change the way you do things when you become a manager, what works, what doesn't, how to be a bit humble, and also when to push yourself forward. That's this week on When the Facts Change with Mike Bennett's. Kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change in the studio here at the spin-off, Mike Bennett, who's the former CEO of Z Energy. Many of you will have heard of Mike or maybe even have heard him or seen him, uh, who's just come out with a book. Great to see you, Mike. Uh, kia ora, Bernard. Uh, tell us about why you've decided to write a book and what it's about. 
Well, when I told people I was leaving Z, of course, you get tons of advice on what you should do next. And some of the people actually said to me, you should write a book. And I thought about that. And then I went back to those folks and said, why do you think I should write a book? And they said, well, there's a whole lot of micisms that you have, phrases, uh, mantras that you've used over the years inside and outside of Z, and they should be shared with the wider audience. And I thought, oh, maybe. And then I thought, actually, I do think I've learned a lot over my time in New Zealand and overseas. And I do think business leaders have the opportunity to share their thoughts, not necessarily makes them right, but they have a chance to share thoughts and experiences in a way that can help others. Yeah, it's called Being Extraordinary by Confronting Your Ordinary. Why did you call it Being Extraordinary by Confronting Your Ordinary? Yeah, sort of two aspects to that. One is I do think people should have more ambition around being extraordinary. I think often we are almost trained up to be less ambitious than what we're actually capable of. So there's that kind of the, the stretch of being extraordinary. And sort of one of the core theses in the book is actually you've got to confront where you are being ordinary if you want to have the extraordinary stuff. And I think in today's world where we want everything in snack size, bite-sized pieces, the Instagram, TikTok world, we want to know it all in 30 seconds and I think that's just not possible to get to extraordinary and you do have to deal with the stuff that holds you back from that. Because in New Zealand, we've got a, a culture, and it's not just a business culture, but a culture which sometimes frowns on boasting, that is distrustful of sales and marketing hype. And, you know, we, we think of the very successful leaders, the ones that are widely admired for a long time. You know, you think of Richie McCaw or... Um, uh, someone like that who, you know, perhaps doesn't push himself forward, uh, but in the end is there. Uh, um, is that an, is that a real thing in New Zealand that we are a little bit backward in coming forward? Yeah, I think it is. And I think one of the benefits we get from New Zealand being a more ethnically or culturally diverse country over the decades is that we'll perhaps temper some of that stuff that comes from our colonial background or, you know, the hundreds of years ago when we all, you know, many of us turned up here as the original settlers, if you like. And I think there's a chance for us to learn from Māoridom around this, which is equally a, my understanding would be a humble culture, but actually through the art of storytelling and narrative and helping people understand where you come from and how you look after your future ancestors, I think that may can still, that can still keep your feet on the ground, but actually can actually realise you all, we all have role as leaders, even though we may not have the title of leader. When you mentioned um, confronting your ordinary, can you give us an, an idea, some examples of where you've had to do that or you've learned to do that and how you did it? Yeah, usually it's by getting something wrong or something not quite going to plan. And I think there's a chance for, to intervene in yourself before it actually turns up as not going quite that way. But I've always been a, a very, very strongly focused learner. Now, I don't mean in a necessarily an academic sense, but when things don't go my way, one of the things I say to myself is um, I am 100% accountable for everything that happens around me all of the time. So when something doesn't go to plan, I say to myself, what did I do or not do that contributed directly or indirectly to what's happened? Now, not can like you that's, just blame someone? <laughs> well, yeah, that's the, that's the, yeah, of course you can, but that's the, that's the easy out. And it's the easy out because you obviously blame someone else and it doesn't require you to confront your own shortcomings. And when things don't go according to plan, some way, somehow, there's a little bit of me in that. And I know that through bitter experience, I can change myself 
or improve myself way easier than I can everyone else around me. Can, so, you, can so, you give us an example of where you've you've seen something where it didn't quite work out and you think it might have been something to do with you where you have changed how you've approached things or how you did things? Yes, yeah, certainly. One of the things I talk about in the book is the notion of identity, which is you know, how we see ourselves, how we perceive ourselves, which is all based on a whole bunch of stories from our past. And I think identity gets in the way of doing things. So one of my aspects of identity is I like to be liked. Now, most people would say, well, Mike is a likable guy. He's a great chief executive because he's accessible, he's approachable, he knows your name, he takes time to speak with you. I mean, that's all the upside of that. The dark side of my desire to be liked is that sometimes when things aren't going that well, I don't intervene early enough. I'll say, hey, Bernard, well, I might even think to myself rather, things aren't going so well, but I'll give Bernard a bit more rope on that one. I'll let him let him try and there'll be some development in there for him. And there's always a reason to justify my own inaction. So what I've learned is to confront my identity around my liking to be liked in such a way of where does that work well for me? And actually, where does that frankly undermine my commitment to delivering performance, you know, customer satisfaction, growing share price, all the things that I was paid to do. It's quite hard because one of the skills of management is getting people to do things for you and go the extra mile, often because of that relationship they have with you. Yes. So I say when I'm being 100% accountable, I don't make it all about me and excuse everybody else. I just start with myself what are the insights that I get about myself and what does that mean for my relationships with those around me? Now, one thing I also have learned over time is to kind of call people out on their BS. And what I mean by that, if I am, as I am, super committed to them being their best version of themselves, why should I tolerate them being anything less than their best version of themselves? And sometimes I do. In my desire to be liked, I kind of walk past things rather than, you know, like give up my desire to be liked and lean into my commitment around them being the best version of themselves and say, look, hey, Bernard, you're giving that all that you have, I think, but I don't think that's you're doing it in the way that I've seen you do before or not in the best way that I've seen you be effective in dealing with that sort of stuff in the past. And how do um, people that you're working with, when they react to that? Because a lot of people haven't done the work of realising that they sometimes they're not very good at some things, or sometimes they are doing the BS. Uh, how do you make sure that they realise you're criticising their uh, performance or their behaviour rather than their personal being? Yeah, I think it's really important that you leave people with an incredibly strong sense of your commitment to their success. Uh, if I was to give an example, think about how we manage our relationships in our families. It's almost taken for granted that we love our children and our children feel loved And that almost creates the context within which you can say that behaviour is not acceptable or what you're doing there is is, one step too far or it's crossed a boundary. So, yeah, clearly love isn't a word that's used that much inside business perhaps, but actually people know that you're super committed to their success in such a way that when you do provide feedback or frankly you tell them off, you know you're doing with all the love and caring in the world about them being successful rather than I'm here to pick on you and find fault in your character. One of the other things that um, a leader has to do is um, be different to what they were before because often people who are elevated into leadership roles may have been an excellent manager or an excellent uh, practitioner of whatever it is, being a lawyer or a marketer or a um, a journalist or whatever. Uh, uh, How do you get people to make that leap from being 
good at something personally to being basically uh, a a person who tries to get lots of other people to do their thing excellently. Yeah, I talk about this in the book actually by drawing the distinction between what I would call management and leadership. So management is about uh, reducing risk, reducing volatility, increasing predictability, and that's what you're taught to do very early in your career. Say when you start your first job, it's all about following the process, son or daughter, you know, get this done, get that done. And at some point, your jobs gradually morph where the job is less about you know, increasing predictability, reducing volatility, and it's more about designing context, setting boundaries and direction, enrolling people in you know, different types of futures. So the job sort of morphs. And so I think it's a little bit like you may, if I was to use a sporting metaphor, you may start off playing tennis and the ball gets lobbed over the net and you keep hitting it back with a forehand and that serves you very well in your career. And at some point in time, the ball starts to come over the net so much quicker that you don't always have time to walk around and, and hit it back with a forehand. You need to learn how to use your backhand. And there are times, particularly when you get into senior leadership roles, where you need to be able to hit a winner with a forehand or a backhand rather than just lob it back to keep the rally going. And now the metaphor breaks down. But I, I think that's the sort of thing I talk about. There's a real difference between management and leadership. And the more senior we become, it becomes much more about leadership rather than the management side of things that, of course, we were trained in for some people for decades before we got the big leadership job. And what are the sort of skills that seem to work best in that leadership rather than management? Yeah, I talk less about skills. Perhaps if I answer that by saying what's the orientation you would need to have as a leader? So I think you need to have an orientation around being authentic, like being you know the best version of yourself. And that implies you need to deal with times you're being inauthentic, like my desire to be liked is a good example of an inauthenticity. I think you need to be accessible. In some respects, the more senior you get, the more accessible you need to become. An example of that is don't sit in open plan and effectively have the sign on your forehead that says, leave me alone because yeah, I've got more important things to do. I think you need to be ambitious, not for yourself, but for those around you and the organisation that you represent. And I think you need to have a strong orientation towards learning because whatever has served you well and got you to the point in your life or your career you're at is probably way insufficient for the future. So authentic, accessible, that notion of being ambitious for those around you and a strong orientation to learning. And one of the other differences with leadership, particularly once you're in a CEO role or working as part of a board or maybe even not in a board situation, but where to make things happen, you can't just tell people in your organisation to do it or even have an employment relationship with them. In many ways, you have to ask them nicely or find ways to make it happen that aren't about ordering them or having a contract or having mm. uh, some sort of formal relationship. A lot of this, the things that have to happen are much more about soft skills and much more about things that you can't control. How, what, what sort of um, orientations work best when you, you do that? Yeah, I've actually reflected on everything I've done well and all the stuff I haven't done well over the years. And I've developed a model that I call the model for extraordinary, where if you said, if you started off that there's a predictable future that's written, there's an outcome that's already largely determined if you just come to work each day. And if you want to strive for something more than that, what do you need to get right for that more than that to be more likely an outcome than the, the predictable one? And it's a bunch of things and it's, um, it, you know, the model's in the book, but it's things like designing context. Right, so what happens, 
there is that people do everything consistent with how things occur to them, right? And things occur to them in the way in which it's spoken about. So what I mean by that is if you go out there and announce a, a major change program, sort of half the room are high-fiving and half the room are completely distraught. And, you, and as a leader, you might think, well, how did that happen? I gave the same presentation, the same slide deck, same body language, same tone. What's on the go? Well, what really happens there is the way in which people respond to what you're saying is all informed by their past experiences. So there's a guy called Alfred Adler, world-renowned psychologist back in the day alongside Jung and Freud, who said that people uh, subjectively interpret objective reality, right? So they, another way of saying that in a more simple language is their perspective on the world is kind of the one they write for themselves. So as a leader, you have to be responsible that people are going to behave entirely consistently with how things show up for them. And it's all going to show up through the filter called, how did this happen to me in the past? Or what did a friend tell me about this? And as I said, leaders need to be responsible for that and, and use words, shape language, shape intent in such a way that you deal with the stuff that people have got going on inside their head, which is, ah, oh, we've just been bought by an Australian company. We all know how that turns out. Or, yeah, the bosses always like change. This is just another change and I'm going to sort of keep my head down and hope it passes like all the other change that we've done you know, for year after year after year. So I don't think leaders are necessarily as mindful about the need to shape the language in such a way that it disturbs the default view that people have and to use language that's much more future orientated than one that is sort of driven by the past or invalidates the past when you're calling for change. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both the recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. A lot of leaders are brought into an organisation. They may not have come from within it. And often they're, they're given the task, right, fix this. <laughs> and uh, you're thrown into it. You haven't necessarily had a chance to understand what was the context for all of those different groups within that organisation in which to interpret the things you're going to do. And sometimes they might have to be done quite quickly. So how do you, you know, uh, quickly assess the different contexts, what's needed, and and then do it uh, in a way which, you know, achieves what you want. 
Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think you quickly assess. So unless it's a crisis situation, I don't think any business really requires, let's say, a CEO or a very senior leader to walk in there and like fix it in 90 days. So I've had a lot of jobs over my uh, working career. And so I learned very early on through the mistakes that I made that when things didn't look at what I expected or weren't showing up in the way that I expected, I would just write it down in a, in a book or a journal. And at the end of the first month or the second month or the third month, I'd sort of reflect on what I wrote down rather than get straight into action. And what I found is after 90 days, most of the stuff I wrote in the book was crossed out because although it didn't make sense to me when I first experienced it, two or three months later, it made sense to me why it was done that way inside the organisation. And I go, oh, that makes sense to me now. Whereas if I had been one of those get it done now people, which is one of those people I used to be, I would have said in the first month, I'm the boss, I've seen the gap, let's change it. Or even worse, I'm the boss, I'm bringing in all my mates from the company I used to work with and we're going to really double up on, we all have a, a, a perspective on that that's not informed by the actual situation the company's in. And I think a lot of it's about, the again, the orientation you have. If you think you are so clever that you can spot something that invalidates everything that has been done in the past or the decisions in the past, then you're a pretty special breed of person, I would I would say. I'm not saying it's a positive or negative one, but you're very special. And what I mean by that is that you know, good leaders, good managers make good decisions based on what they knew at the time. And sometimes things change such that that decision is no longer the right one and needs to change, but doesn't make it the wrong decision when it was done at the time. So you've got to be fairly arrogant if you think you can come in, spot everything that's wrong and, and make all the changes inside the first 90 days. Is there, though a situation where doing the right thing is better than um, weighing up all the options and taking a very situational, almost transactional approach. Yeah, I think there are times where you, well, perhaps I, if I word it another way, there's a difference, I think, between being effective and being efficient. So one is doing things right and one is doing the right things. And when uh, sort of Peter Drucker, sort of a well-known person around management, said there's nothing quite so foolish is doing something efficiently that doesn't need to be done at all. So I think I've, I've had experiences of that where people want to simplify processes rather than say, well, why do we even do it anyway? You know, is that, how does that actually add value to the customer or to the employee experience? So I think, again, you just got to be mindful about the things that you do and not default to uh, past experiences or what you think you should do rather than actually what is really needed here, whether it be efficiency or effectiveness. Am I playing a long game or a short game? Because sometimes you can make a whole lot of improvements in the short term that frankly undermines the long-term health of the company or its relationships with its customers or indeed your relationship with your employees. And when you think about uh, how uh, people think, I, I enjoy reading a book called thinking fast and thinking slow, in which I always uh, imagine a brain as a lizard brain, <laughs> the bit where we react quickly and there's fight or flight, and then there's more of a sit back and think, a bit like your notebook scrubbing things out. How do you um, identify in yourself or ensure that the people around you um, use one or the other when it's appropriate? Because sometimes it is appropriate to run or to fight. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of that comes back to awareness of your own self. And so, again, I'm not not—I'm far from a perfect uh, person or a perfect leader. And I've done enough work to know that what I'm at risk of. So I, you know, I, I'm a bundle of bias on a whole bunch of things. So I love change. 
for example. So that means when anything comes along, um, I'm always looking to change something. So I, I've learned over the years to really recognize that in myself, that perhaps changing something that's not going well may not be the right answer. It might be to sort of double down on doing it properly the way it was designed in the first place, to kind of give a very trite example. So I think the more you can recognize your own bias um, or your own collection of experiences that really limits you to only responding from what you know, as opposed to you don't know what you don't know, I think that opens a lot up. Like I often joke with people, you should have put me in charge of Z when I was 21 when I knew everything. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I'm now, you know, you know I left Z you know, at the age of sort of 60, 61 years old and I have more questions about my leadership and abilities today than I did when I was 21. That's interesting. I, I sometimes feel the same where the older you get, the more you realise you don't know anything. <laughs> which is um, sort of scary, really, uh, given there are a whole bunch of 21-year-olds um, running around doing things, uh, often uh, with quite dangerous devices. I wonder, though, um, uh, now that you've finished as a CEO, what are you going to do with those skills? You've written a book. Because a lot of people who've been a CEO then decide to go into some sort of governance directorship or some other role like that. What are you going to do? So I'm I'm not going to do that full time. I'd, I'd like to take on, I actually already have one directorship and I'd like to limit myself to one directorship. I think there's a contribution I can make there and there's something that I can continue to learn and develop myself from being a director. My strong preference is to do much more around fulfilling on my purpose or my co-papa, which is to realise individual and organisational potential. Now, I've been doing that for over 20 years now. So what I'm effectively doing is swapping a platform called Z Energy to being my new platform, which is Tomata Advisory, to have that as the basis upon which I go out and realise individual and organisational potential. So that is by continuing to write and, and blog and, and provide thought leadership. Um, I'm available to provide keynote presentations and, and stuff like that. But my core business really is around executive coaching and consulting. And I'm continually struck by how uh, the world's best athletes work with coaches of all sorts to improve their game, to deliver the sort of results, whether it be a gold medal or a World Cup, in such a way that's a real contrast to business leaders where there's something that happens when you get to be a senior person. You go, well, gosh, I can't really ask for a coach because I'm now in the top job or a senior job. Yet you mentioned earlier how we accept certain things from athletes in New Zealand culturally, but we don't in business. I mean, I've had coaches on and off for over 20 years. And I continue to work with my coach today. We have a once-a-month hookup where we are effectively coaching one another now. So consulting and coaching is really kind of the core business. Keynote presentations and you know, continuing to write um, is a way to share thoughts with people in such a way that it, you know, frankly, helps them get after their version of extraordinary. Because one of the things I've, I think I've learned uh, by watching um, politicians and leaders over the years, I've been lucky to have a sort of a box seat on history in a few places, is that the more I think about it and the more I interact with people who are in leadership roles, often I realise how lonely that can be or how lonely they are because everyone they deal with, you could argue, wants something from them or is expecting something from them. Uh, is that something that it's useful to have, someone who is not necessarily your boss or your someone who reports to you or a competitor or a potential next new um, colleague, but someone completely independent and only there 
to work with you. Yeah, I think that's the benefit that comes from it. You think about some of our world's best athletes, their coaches are not better at the game or the sport than they are, but coaches can still provide a useful perspective. So I think a coach can be like an accountability mechanism. If you've got to, if you know you've got to show up to your coach every fortnight or every month and they're going to ask you the questions that you agreed to work on from the last session, you know you can't hide from that. Um, a coach is there for you. They're not there to manage your performance like, say, a, a board or the chief executive would manage you know, people further into the organisation. So they're deeply committed to your success. They're able to potentially use language or speak about things in such a way that they do call you out on your BS. Now, sometimes it's harder to do that as a manager because that starts to sound like constructive dismissal or you're leading me down the path about sort of working me out the door. So I think there's there's a perspective that a coach can provide and they can talk in such a way that actually opens up your mind to things and that accountability mechanism can be really helpful. I was with one of my clients earlier in the week and uh, they said to me that they almost dread having to front up to me because they know that they can't hide from the commitment they gave me last time. Whereas perhaps in, in their business world, they can give the boss some excuse around, yeah, markets got tougher, uh, government policy changed, yeah, something happened in the external environment that lets them off the hook. Whereas actually, I'm not interested in that. I'd, I'd like to understand it, but actually, I think I'm more interested in what are you doing that gets in your way of being the best version of yourself? And it sounds to me like you're telling a story that enables you to hide from what you have to deal with versus actually dealing with it. Mike Bennett's, um, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Kia ora. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.